Why don't we just take a moment of prayer as we come to think about our reading together this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word, to explore what your word could be saying to us today and how it impacts how we live our lives, we pray that you would indeed unveil our eyes, that we would see you face to face, that we would draw strength from you, that we would in this next 30 minutes know the power of your love surrounding us. May we encounter you for who you are, and may we find who we are in you as we journey with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The place smelt like the perfume department of an expensive store. It was as if someone had bumped their elbow against the shelf and caused the bottle of perfume to come crashing to the floor in turn setting off the most expensive stink bomb on earth. But it happened in a house and not in a shop. And the woman involved was not some casual Saturday shopper, but a beloved friend, maybe giving away the only precious thing that she had. And as he sat still, and as she poured liquid over his head, as unnecessary as aftershave on a full crop of hair and a fully grown beard, those who smelt it and those who saw it and those who remembered that Jesus was against extravagance called both of them wasters. This morning, we are continuing our journey through John's gospel. And this morning, we find ourselves back where we were two weeks ago. Remember back, if you will, how we learned about Jesus traveling from time to time, moving about from village to village, and he gets word from a friend that one of his closest and dearest friends is actually extremely sick. Not just extremely sick, but close to death. And what does Jesus do? Well, if you remember back, we learned that Jesus doesn't run off immediately to try and help, but rather Jesus stays where he was. Time passes, and Jesus then tells the disciples that it might be a good idea to head to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But by the time that Jesus gets there, we discover that Lazarus has been dead for four days. This man was not only sick, but in the time that it took Jesus to respond, he had died and was in the tomb for four days. And remember, if you will, how Jesus suddenly goes and meets Mary and Martha in two separate and unique ways, because Jesus recognizes in them that everyone grieves differently. But remember also how Jesus finds himself at the tomb, praying to God and calling this man who is dead to come out. And lo and behold, through the power of a simple prayer, the dead is back among the living. But what we see in this continuation of the story is that whilst the dead is now back among the living, one who is among the living is, in, is himself preparing to die. Because as we journey through John's gospel, what we can see is that the gospel as a whole can be split into two sections. In chapters 1 to 12, it's all about Jesus' public ministry, all about Jesus' earthly life, from the wedding feast at Cana to the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. 
And then in chapters 13 to 21, what we witness is the last weekend in Jesus' life. A long weekend, if you will, Thursday through to Sunday. So what we encounter this morning in John chapter 12 is crucial, because it is in John chapter 12 that the writer is winding down one story and accelerating another, winding down the physical life of Jesus and accelerating the fact that the Word made flesh is now preparing to hand himself over to death. And as we encounter these simple eight verses at the beginning of John chapter 12, what we see is that the evangelist is trying to get two things across to us, stressing two important features that we need to understand before we can go any further. What we encounter then in these eight verses is a familiar meal and a familiar story. Let's unpack that a little. Meals matter. Meals matter. I bet if you're anything like me as you sit there this morning and the clock gets closer to 12, you're thinking, do you know what? Breakfast was a long time ago. I could really do with a snack. Maybe some of you, like Janice, have already had your snack in the form of the chocolate. But you see, for me, church and the swimming pool have one thing in common. You leave both of them starving. Meals matter to us. Though we sort of live today in an eat-and-run culture, don't we? I can't think of a meal I've had this week where I have not been at a work function or been sitting, typing, or writing whilst I eat. And I'm sure for many of you this morning, this past week has been exactly the same. How many of us find ourselves having such busy days that we are in the car going from one place to another and maybe we're trying to eat a sandwich and conduct a telephone call via via Bluetooth as we do it. Your secret is safe with me, though my mother's here this morning and I know over lunch today, I will probably get into a lot of trouble for admitting to doing that myself. We live in a drive-through culture. And how many of us on a Friday or Saturday night have found ourselves in response to the question, what do you fancy for dinner, responding with maybe a number 72 in rice? We've reduced meals to numbers, but meals still matter. For example, say you're having friends over for dinner, and in the week leading up to the meal, you think the house is fine. Oh, sure, it's grand. But in the 24 hours that precedes that person coming over, how many of us have then decided that actually our houses, our apartments are more like a bomb site? And the cry goes out, there's stuff everywhere. And the cry goes out, quick, clean. And the cry goes out to the kids, quick, clean your room. And the cry comes back from the kids, why are we having dinner in there too? That's not the point. You respond, Why? Because meals still matter. Meals matter today, and meals mattered back in the time of Jesus. Perhaps even meals mattered more back then, because associated with meals was an issue around honor, an issue around hospitality, and an issue around hosting. 
Because meals back then were more than eat and run. Because if you back then invited someone over for dinner, what you were saying was not just come to my house to have something to eat, but what you were actually doing was extending friendship and an offer of friendship to that person. And time and time again, as we journey through Scripture, we constantly see Jesus eating with people. And we see that those meals that Jesus shared with people often led to him getting into trouble. We read in Luke, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you call him a glutton and a drunkard because he eats with tax collectors and sinners. The criticism here from the religious was not that Jesus was eating with these people, but the criticism was in fact that Jesus was offering friendship to them. At these meals, Jesus was saying, I'm accepting you. And particularly in Luke's gospel, we can journey through all the meals and see that Jesus particularly enjoyed eating with those who the society of the day would have considered as the downtrodden and the outcast. Meals matter today. Meals mattered then, and meals mattered in the story of Jesus. But along with having a familiar meal in these first eight verses of chapter 12 in the book of John, what we also encounter is a familiar storyline. We see a storyline with which the original hearers and listeners to this story would have known what was going to happen. There was a form, there was a technique, there was a way in which the story would have been told. It's a bit like me saying to you, for example, do you, on a Saturday night, do you fancy watching a romantic comedy? And while some of us may sit there and pretend that we maybe don't like them, we all know how the plot line will go. Because we know, for example, that two people will meet. We know that the two people will part because of some obstacle. We know that they will then spend a period of time alone, and during that time, they'll maybe think that they weren't right for each other. But as time goes on, they'll discover that not only were they so right for each other, but that their life would just be so incomplete without that person, and they seek to hook up again. Then, unexpectedly, they meet, and they declare their undying love for each other, and they live happily ever after. You've got meal. Love Actually, one of my favorites. Twilight, yes, even vampires fall in love. Transformers, wait, hang on a minute. We all know Transformers ain't no rom-com. Because we know how the storyline goes. And it would have been the same in the ancient world. And it would have been especially the same in the ancient world when the story focused around a meal. Because there would have been certain things that the hearer would have been looking out for. Key signifiers. They would have been looking for a host. They would have been looking for an honored guest. They would have been looking for a disruption. And they would have been looking for a crowd. And as we read these eight verses together this morning, we see that all of that is there in John's gospel. We see a crowd that is gathered around a meal. We see a host, or hosts in this case, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We see an honored guest, Jesus. And we see a disruption in the form of perfume being spilt and a debate about the poor. So as we approach this story this morning, these are the lenses through which John wants us to encounter it. Through the lens of a familiar story, 
but also through the lens of a familiar meal. And as we've seen in the, in this, in the, over the past couple of weeks, tension has been building in the book of John. Today, we witness a public meal being served in Jesus' honor, but what we see is actually that this meal is going to mark the beginning of the end. And time and time again, as we have journeyed through John, what we have seen is that so often there is so much going on beneath the surface that maybe isn't apparent on a first reading. Remember back, if you will, all those months ago, how John chooses to launch Jesus' public ministry. It too is with a meal, a wedding feast at Cana. So for John, Jesus' public ministry both begins and ends with a feast, though in both the mood is extremely different. At Cana, Jesus and the disciples had attended in the anticipation of their newly launched mission. The bringing of the sparkling new wine of the kingdom of God to the tired and sepid waters of Judaism. But here the tone is different. It's dark. There are heavy clouds on the horizon, and there is a burden in the heart of Jesus. The celebration is muted, and the talk is of burial and not renewal. Yet, yet even here we cannot escape that there is a note of optimism. We cannot lose completely the perspective of hope expressed in the meal and its promise of a day to come when one day people from north and south, east and west will sit down in the kingdom of God. But the meal is disrupted. Mary comes up behind Jesus as he reclines in the customary manner, his head close to the low central table where the fool was laid. Remember, this is a sign that the original hearers would have been waiting for. And in an act of devotion, Mary approaches Jesus and breaks open an extremely expensive bottle of perfume and anoints his feet. Uses her hair to wipe his feet. A woman unbinding their hair in those days would have been regarded as most unseemly. So what we see here is that Mary is so clearly moved by feelings of deep loyalty that she is even ready to embrace and indeed receive the social disapproval that would come with such an action. The effect on the atmosphere is immediate and pervasive, as the whole house fills with the fragrance of Mary's deed, both physically and emotionally. But note, but note in our reading this morning that all aren't pleased with her act of devotion, care, and love for her Savior. Because what we encounter is Judas is not one happy boy at all. But what we need to remember is that when this incident is recorded in the other Gospels, the other writers seem to place the emphasis on the collective disgust of the disciples. So is there a reason here why John is singling Judas out? Is John here saying that Judas is actually the ringleader of the discontent? Judas, in this reading, is seen as a guy whose mind is always on the money and how the money is being spent. Though it is worth noting that the value of the perfume would have been enormous. The equivalent to a total annual salary 
of an average or above average wage earner. And in one simple action, it's all gone. In a society where the evidence of abject poverty was at every hand, and starvation never far from most households, it's gone. So with a first glance, sympathy with Judas may not be displaced or misplaced. As treasurer of the disciples, though, we learn that he apparently was not beyond or indeed um, above helping himself to the Jesus Revolution bank account. And the value of the perfume would certainly have given him rich pickings. Maybe this morning we can glean from this aside in John that long before Judas ever betrayed Jesus' body, Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus' trust. But what follows is interesting. After the disruption of Judas, Jesus takes side with Mary. Because we learn in John's gospel that what she has done, the purpose of her action, is actually divine. Because what she is doing is preparing Jesus' body for burial. Preparing my body for burial. Can you imagine the atmosphere at that party? I think it's gone from, you know, oh, let's all have a good time to, what's he on about now? The atmosphere chills. But along with the prediction of his death and the preparations for his death, there's another striking comment. Because Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you. You will always have the poor among you. Now, when we come to this statement, we need to see that there are two sorts of extremes that we need to avoid in lines of thought. We need to not go down the line that, well, what Jesus is actually saying is don't give to the poor, because time and time again in Scripture, we see that Jesus' concern is always with the poor, always with the downtrodden, always with the widow and the orphan. In fact, he goes as far in Matthew's gospel to say that those who don't give to the poor will not inherit the kingdom of God. But secondly, we must also understand that in this statement, Jesus is not playing down his central mission of saving the sins of the world. Because the real challenge presented here by Jesus in this statement is more about motivation. What Jesus is saying here is that if you are only doing good to sort of gain favor with, for yourself with God, well then you're on a hiding to nothing. Because what Jesus is bringing through his arrival on earth in flesh is a radically new motivation for gratitude. But what we find also in our reading this morning through the person of Mary is a new model of service for Jesus throughout the generations. I'm just going to walk through a couple of things that we can learn from her. We discover that Mary has a humble heart. To anoint Jesus, she took the place of subservience. Significantly, when Mary is mentioned three times in the gospel, she's always at Jesus' feet. She's either sitting at the Lord's feet, she's either falling at his feet, or she's anointing his feet. True service of Jesus, Mary shows us, is born in wholehearted commitment. The feet of Jesus is where service of him begins. This morning, why don't we ask ourselves the question, are we prepared to be found at his feet? 
But we also see that Mary has a perceptive heart. Because although the true significance of her action at this point is hidden to her, it was right because she perceived something in the mind of Jesus. Despite the festive nature of the occasion, Mary senses his true spirit and feels in her own soul the dark waters in which Jesus will soon be immersed. The secret of Mary's insight was that she sat at Jesus' feet and listened to what he had to say. This morning, are we sitting? Are we listening? Or are we out there trying to make our own way? Trying to make Jesus' mode of mission into one that we would actually just like it to look like, not the one that he intends. But we also see that Mary's act was timely because we read that it was this perfume was intended to be used and kept for this very moment. If she had held it back, this moment would have passed and he wouldn't have been anointed for burial. This morning, is there something that we are holding back just in case we might need it for a rainy day or further down the road? Could this be, like for Mary, the very moment that Jesus wants us to use it? But we see that her action was also sharply criticized. There's a note of realism here. While Jesus may approve, others may not, even those who seem to be his inner disciples. So don't be surprised this morning if what you think God is calling you to do causes upset or criticism. It could just be that you, in actual fact, have the vision for what God is trying to do. Mary's action, probably the most notable thing about it, is its extravagance. It was amazingly generous. But in the end, despite of the expensiveness, Mary gave it away, poured it all out, for her master. This morning, are we holding some things back because it would cost us too much to pour them out in God's service? But finally, we see that Mary's service was also fruitful because within an instant, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mark, when he recounts this story, even goes as far as to say that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be a reminder to all. Mary this morning, reminding us that no matter, reminding us this morning about sincere service. However it might be opposed, it has the capacity to touch and bless others' lives. So this morning, in eight short verses, what we encounter are that Jesus' feet smell, that Jesus' feet smell like perfume. And as we inhale the fumes, what we learn is a lesson in servanthood. What we learn is a lesson in perspective, in perceptiveness. What we learn is a lesson in timeliness. What we learn is a lesson in following God's lead. And what we learn is a lesson in extravagant giving and a lesson in the fruitfulness of faithful service. Jesus' feet smell like perfume. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we encountered your word that you would have been stirring something in us. 
that you would have been showing us how we can be like Mary, how we can give ourselves fully, how we can adopt a position of servitude, how we can extravagantly give, and how we can follow your leading. So we pray that you would take those stirrings that you have placed within our hearts this morning and let them leave here with us. But don't just let them leave here with us, but constantly challenge us and remind us and call us into action for service of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.